there's we've reached an apex like everybody talks about vibe shift like we've definitely reached it like you know the people that don't hang out in our circles are still like faking offense at shit that happens or whatever but like they're on their way out everybody can feel it like everybody's rolling their eyes everybody's like, okay you know like yeah. nobody cares like you know oh look at this we have to listen to you whine now for like 20 minutes but <laughs> yeah i think that's done with but yeah dude i mean fuck it yeah people don't get people go you know they always get pissed off at guests like, oh the wrong guest i went on a rant about like on that last episode workshop episode about uh what i call the dnc rubric for like grading art and i like <laughs> preempted it like people are like i know everybody's gonna call me like some kind of crazy republican like i'm like i'm not i'm just calling it like i see it like if you're pretending that you don't see what's happening here you're in denial like there is one particular political thing that's like graded like applied to grade everything and it's fucking ruining it's ruined art like it's ruined no, no, absolutely. Yeah. like it's like if you have one dog whistle opinion then you cannot be listened to on literally anything you are literally a far-right extremist so okay sure i'm a far-right extremist then. <laughs> yeah i so said that's the opening line i'm a far-right extremist so <laughs> I am heavy, heavy, heavy board. And welcome to another episode of Heavy Board Presents Jerk Shop. And I am joined by Cassandra at Truth underscore Enjoyer. Welcome, Cassandra. Hello. Thank you for having me once again. I'm so happy to be here. Of course. I wouldn't do it any other way. But today we're here for our first workshop stories edition with our first guest for it, too. So you're actually the inaugural guest for uh, Workshop Horror Stories. I'm honored. I'm honored to betray the terms of my workshop and talk shit about it. <laughs> That honestly, great place to start. You said like uh, the kind of like weird, like Illuminati code around it, right? Like the kind of. Yeah, that you're not allowed to like talk about what happens in workshop, but everyone always does. And so it's like everyone knows that everyone talks about what happens in workshop. What happens in workshop doesn't stay in workshop, but it's like supposed to. But yeah, like it's happened so many times. Like I like we were talking about on the other episode. Like if a man came to workshop with a piece that was like considered toxic masculinity, like, you know, that all the girls in the workshop are going to be talking about it after separately. I've witnessed it. I've witnessed it so many times. I also have had experiences with people talking shit about me in workshop for very, or outside of workshop for various reasons. Like it happens all the time. But then at the same time, it's like this code of conduct that if anyone finds out that you talked about workshop outside of workshop, then you're kicked out of the workshop. Anyway, whatever the workshop's over, maybe I'm allowed to talk about it. I don't know. I don't know what the rules are now. <laughs> all the all the women are talking about it while secretly wanting to fuck the person that wrote it. What kind yeah, of, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Very very common sentiment. Many such cases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
But uh, this is the, as some listeners will know, this is, if you're first time listening to this, this is what we do on Heavy Board. We have a segment here we call Jerk Shop, and we are going into workshop stories, culture, and it's going to be negative, but I try to not make it entirely negative. So, you know, the problems, proposed solutions, uh, stories, events, all that kind of shit we talk about here on Heavy Board. Uh, again, the listeners out there, if you have something you want to share with us, please write that in, heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll read it on the air here. Anonymous, of course. We don't want to uh, blow up anybody's spot. But I started this segment off because we got like emails from a few listeners, and they kept talking about this stuff called, like, what they kept referring to it as like workshop culture. Workshop culture, and it's kind of like MFA or academic culture. I just wanted to start you off with asking, like, what do you what do you think of when you hear workshop culture? Or what does it mean to you? Or what is like the first shit that comes to mind? When I hear workshop culture, I definitely think politically correct. I definitely think that it's like, yeah, if you write anything that's outside of your quote unquote lived experience wheelhouse, you're going to get called out for it. Um. It's almost like, what's that term? I'm like blanking sensitivity reader. I think that's the thing now that they have, like being in workshop feels like having a sensitivity reader and like people like telling you if your thing is offensive or whatever. Um, on top of that, and I'm just going very high level right now. We can like circle back. But I also think in my experience, as long as you're not getting called out for something like that, like if you're like a straight white man writing about something that you're going to get called out for, that's one thing. But if you're like me and you're a woman and you're writing something that's maybe not problematic, because a lot of the stuff that I write isn't problematic, contrary to my Twitter presence. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so like I didn't get a lot of hate in workshop, but instead I got like way too nice people bending over backwards to be way too nice and then expecting me to be way too nice to them. And I think that's also workshop culture where it's like, okay, so we're just going to coddle each other. Those are the things that come to mind when I think of workshop culture. I also think of trigger warnings and I really want to talk about this, but anyway, that's yeah. my take. <laughs> and, and I'm glad Cassandra agreed to do this because like we, like she did this right after me. I graduated my MFA in 2019. She told me she graduated like around 2021, right? Your MFA? Yeah. So like yeah, she yeah. experienced it even like a little bit after I was done with all this stuff and how much it's changed even like two years, like, and now given what it's probably is. But I think what you're touching on too, there's like the hot girl phenomenon. If you're the pretty girl in workshop, people are like extra nice to you. You know what I mean? <laughs> kind of thing. And it's kind of annoying, right? If you're trying to actually like do workshop shit and they're just like, like, oh, I like it. Like, it's pretty. Like, uh, it's fine. Yeah, I get very little. And I, I don't know if it's like that phenomenon or like, God, this is going to be so arrogant sounding. But like, I think people knew that I had like kind of top grades in the workshop after the first semester. And at, like, I, I don't care about grades. None of that fucking matters in the real lit world. But I think that once people realize that, they ended up like kind of like trying to suck up to me in workshop and get me to like give them positive feedback, which like none of this benefits anyone at all. Um, but yeah, so that happened. And then I think also it was also like, yeah, I don't know. Like if you're a woman, women will do it in this like feminist way. I don't know. There's all these weird reasons why people will suck up to you in workshop. There's so many different reasons, but I definitely did notice kind of what you're alluding to, which is that, like normal straight men in workshop got the worst feedback out of everyone. <laughs> so 
Yeah. Like yeah. if you're a gay man, if you're a woman, if you're like, you know, of, you know, a different race other than white, like you would get better feedback in workshop than the others. And like, I'm going to be deemed a reactionary for saying that, but like, that's, that's what I witnessed. In my yeah. Workshop. I think we, I think it, it depends on the, I mean, we talked about, I talked about this in the first episode. Like that's, I think what you're getting at is true. Like there, when I think workshop culture, I think there, are, that means there are sets of rules. Like there are rules and etiquette and things that are expected. And some of that means that there are words that are off limit. Like there's censorship that happens in the workshop. Like there are topics that are off limits. There are subjects off limits according to a racial hierarchy, you know, kind of thing. Like where like you can't talk about certain subjects or I mean, you can, right. But like in the workshop setting, it's deemed not allowed type thing. It's against the rules. Uh, and it's really weird. And I mean, everybody's feeling it. Uh, it's part of the reason I wanted to start this segment is because everybody feels this, this is part of workshops. This is just what it is now. And uh, it's making it kind of suck uh, for the most part, but there are these kinds of, rules and like you said right away it's pc right politically correct but it's politically correct according to only one set of politics and you don't feel like you're actually getting real feedback because if all of your feedback is filtered through all these weird social constraints then it's not about the writing anymore so i don't even know if the writing's good anymore you know absolutely that's like the rules i call it the dnc rubric to grading art and you see this even in reviews of movies you could pick up a copy of the new yorker you can read the book reviews well they're taking the books to task not according to the craft or like what's on the page they're taking it to task according to this set this rubric that how well it adheres to a certain political ideology and you're graded according to that and not according to what's on the page. And you see this, you know, we're recording this on July 6th, uh, but it's like that you just saw it with the DFW stuff, right? That just came out with like DFW is one that he trends every six months on Twitter because people love him or hate him. And there's a bunch of haters, a bunch of lovers, but like this guy trends every six months and it's always about something other than the writing. It's about like, oh, he was an asshole or, oh, he was misogynist or, you know, oh, he, you know, Mary Carr's telling stories or whatever about how he was an asshole. And then we started on Mary Carr. <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, shit. No, I like, I, I like, I like her memoirs, but I'm like, dude, when you read her memoirs and you read the way she talks about DFW in the memoirs, it's so much more generous than the way that she talks about him now, because now it's politically expedient to throw him under the bus. Like that yeah. is so obvious to me and that sucks. And you can tell in those memoirs, she admired him. Like, she definitely right. admired him, yeah. But now, all of a sudden, it's, like, fine to, like, kick a dead man because it gives you, like, me two points. Like, I don't know. I'm not into that. And according to, like, a specific political ideology, because DFW was a liberal. <laughs> like, DFW was, like, a, like a normal college-educated liberal. Like, kind of, like, you read, like, the This Is Water stuff. Like, he's talking about climate change. Like, he's talking about... Right. Uh, what we consider left or liberal leaning politics, but like now he's like some evil person because he had a male sex drive or, and he was a drug addict. People always right. forget that. Like, of course he had mood swings and was probably an asshole and like ghosted people. Well, like in the whole Mary Carr book, like I literally read the memoir where she talks about her relationship with him. And she says that like, they were both complicit in it. She goes into kind of a good amount of detail about how they were both like, you know, recovering addicts and stuff. But then like all of a sudden now with the Me Too, it's just like this very black and white 
weird narrative where she leaves out all of that, all of the nuance that she wrote about it with. And now all of a sudden it's just like DFW sucks. And it's like, okay, well, yeah, I think that sucks, but. <laughs> and it, I guess because he's so big, I think people, I think, I don't think they're doing this consciously, but I think there is a level of people are trying to steal some of his fame, you know? Cause if you, if you talk shit about DFW, well then you're immediately getting clicks, you know, uh, you're kind of attacking this this huge icon in American literature who can't defend himself because he's dead, which, you know, whatever. He's still fair game. You can talk about his work. But, like, it, it's just incredible to me that that's where we are. Like, it's not – not only is – I don't think it's not beneficial in terms of discovering what the art is doing, like what we're trying to get out of it and the reason we remembered him. And even – I mean, let's be honest. He was revered. Like he was a god in the literary world up until he killed himself. So, you know, are we going to pretend that this huge titan that literally changed the game is just somebody that we can dismiss or say, oh, he wasn't that good? I'm like, okay, why don't you write Infinite Jet? Like why don't you do it then, you know? <laughs> Go ahead and write this, you know, 1500 page book complete with, you know, hundreds of pages of footnotes that are actually pretty fucking clever for the most part. I'm not even a huge DFW guy. I just get irritated. Like when you said this, 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 this thing other than the writing is being forced into it and we have to just, there's no other way right. to talk about it. There's no other, we're not allowed. You're not allowed to talk well, about think, it. Any other I'm way. sure you probably experienced this too, but in my workshops, like DFW was constantly invoked as this kind of like archetypal lit bro like oh you don't want to be like that oh if you like dfw then you're a lit bro you know what i mean so if if you enjoy or even just like read this guy's writing who's very influential who we should all be reading whether we like it or not if you're if you're reading his thing if if you're seen with a david foster wallace book then you're a lit bro you know it's it's right. derogatory it's actually funny too because it's this gets the online phenomenon but like where we had a guest on this podcast from a friend of mine I went to MFA with, <clears throat> shout out Lee Madeline. She was on here. Listeners, go back and listen to that episode by her book. And she was telling me she loves DFW. And she was talking about how like when she was in like college and like up in New York and shit and like uh, people would always say these these colloquialisms or these tropes where they'd be like, oh, a guy, you know, you're dating a guy that brings up DFW or whatever on a date. And you're like, that's a red flag or whatever. And she talked about how like, she never really had that date. Like, like I, that never actually happened on like a date she had, but like for some reason, everybody was pretending that this happened all the time. And it is like that lit bro thing where it's like, Oh my God, you know, roll it's the eyes. But is it even real? Like when I have encountered people who like DFW, like on my, you know, MFA program or in literary scenes or whatever, they're always very like self-conscious and self-deprecating and like ironizing about it. And I'm like, why do we need to be ironizing? Like, he's just good. Sorry. Like, and again, same as you, actually. I'm not a massive DFW stan. I read Infinite Just, like, in high school. I haven't read it since. I probably didn't take enough of it in because I was too young to really get it. I like some of his essays. I think some of them are too verbose. But I can acknowledge that he's extremely talented and extremely influential. Like, why is it so hard to acknowledge that? Yeah, it's... I don't want to make the whole thing about DFW. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan either. Yeah, it's and I do like his journalism more than I like his fiction. Usually, he was he was clever. I mean, you can't deny his, he was clever and right. he's good. And he's and, super influential. Like yeah, so yeah. many of the people that we like are downstream from him. So 
Absolutely. Like even I think that, like half of my own personal essay writing like started out being more DFWE than it turned out to be later. Like he's just like kind of I wouldn't say a pioneer of the genre. That's not the right word, but he really shaped the genre. He did something. Like that's what I think people what really irritates me when they talk about like how he behaved sexually or his sexual that thing too. Like you see all this stuff with like old writers, particularly dead writers, a lot of the modernist writers where they there's this thing that happens in the literary world where they, we, we, we substitute biography for criticism. So like we start talking about like, you know, you'll see an article. There was one recently I saw, you know, some secret sex life or something like, oh, the secret sex life of, you know, Edith Wharton or the secret sex mm -hmm. life of James Joyce or so, like as if that tells us anything about right, like the work. Well, and it's like speculating too. Like, I mean, we don't know for a fact we can just read letters and then speculate kind of thing or stories that people said. So it is kind of like, I think it's just kind of a, it's easier than to actually engage with something that's been written about ad nauseum to say, oh, I did something new, but I just speculated about this like fantasy sex life that I thought up or whatever. And to be honest, like I love reading like letters and like kind of piecing together biography. Like I'm really interested in those things, but like, I kind of like when I find out things that are maybe not like super trad or palatable about writers. Like I'm not expecting my writers to be these upstanding citizens at the end of the day. I like, I, most artists are not, and that's, it's neither here nor there. I don't know. Like if, if anything, it just adds to the intrigue. It shouldn't make it like, Oh, so don't read them. I was like, I would be shocked if most artists were living an extremely upstanding normie life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It just, it just drives me nuts with that bullshit drives me nuts. But yeah. Uh, the next thing I want to do. Anyways, on tangent. I'm well, sorry no, 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 no. Anything goes. There are no rules. I think it all relates to the MFA, not just workshops, but like the culture around it too. But like the next question would be, and I wanted to get your thoughts on it kind of, you know, what are your, what are your thoughts on like the workshops? I hate to say it this way, but like the workshops place in like creative writing, uh, shit like that. So it's interesting because I don't think that I got much out of my workshops when I was on my program in terms of feedback, but I do think that I got a lot out of it in terms of having a deadline and being forced to produce X amount of pages before the workshop. So that was useful. When I was on my program, I kind of figured out pretty early on maybe like three or four people in my workshop whose opinion I actually respected. And then everyone else, I was kind of like, oh, like, you know, I'll still read what they have to say, but I'm not as worried about what they have to say, you know? And so I would write my thing for workshop and then I would, I would read everyone's stuff, but like the, the few people who I actually respected as writers, those were the ones that I would kind of take their feedback more seriously. And so I do think that there is a benefit and a use for that. And I do think that outside of the MFA, if you can like, you know, network and be friends with other writers who you are comfortable sharing your work with, whether that's in a workshop setting or just one-on-one, -on -one, then I think that there is a real benefit to that. And that doesn't mean that you have to take all their advice or none of it, like, you know, like it's usually a gray area. But I think that that is beneficial. And I think that that's something that workshop kind of taught me, like to figure out who to share my work with and what advice to take. 
because before I did my MFA, I would just share my work with like random normies, like just random friends who were not writers. And, you know, they'd be like, it's good. Or like, I don't get it. Or like, you know what I mean? But like, it wasn't useful feedback. And I think figuring out who you can and can't get useful feedback from was a good thing that I learned through that workshop experience. But ultimately to answer the question, I did not find my workshops particularly beneficial. And you had, there's, that. there's a caveat to that. Cause you were telling me when we were chatting that this was an online workshop, right? Cause of COVID. Yeah. 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 So that's part of it. It was all online. So it probably was worse than it would have been if it was in person. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's true because there's something that happens with when I, I noticed this too, where like, yeah, there was maybe one or two people. I've never been in a workshop where there was more than maybe one or two where like, okay, they're the reader that you're going to listen to. And then everybody else you can just kind of disregard. Uh, and it is kind of frustrating because it depends on the individual effort. So like I had a reputation of being a good reader, uh, and people trusted what I said. And it's like, I'm like, yeah, well, like they did that. I'm like, I earned that because I was giving people great feedback. Like I was literally reading everything more than everybody else noticing. And then it just, yeah, you're based on around the individual effort of the people sitting around that table with you. And that does get frustrating, but there's like, I see a tendency now, particularly in the kind of, you know, I always say it's well-intentioned and I admire the energy of the kind of alt lit scene that's popping up everywhere, uh, online and stuff. But my, like, you know, it's kind of bad. Like, I just wish like the work itself were like better, you know, cause if you want to make like a serious impact, like literally take the mainstream to task, it has to be better than what the mainstream is doing, you know, for them to even give a shit about you. But like, I think that there's this like tendency to shit all over like writing workshops and particularly MFAs just because, you know, like I mentioned when we were recording about psych and this, like, you know, it's mostly people that didn't go to MFAs or like couldn't get into ones. So they're kind of bitter and there's a lot of bitterness and jealousy in, in creative fields like this. That's definitely part of it. But yeah, I'm always just curious on like writers and particularly their take on where they think it fits, you know, like there's, there's benefits and there's, there's negative things that can happen. I'm not averse to workshops. Like I would a hundred percent do a workshop willingly if I was able to like know that everyone in the workshop was someone I'd actually want to workshop with. I think that part of my problem and most people's problem with it is that it's like, you know, assigned by these external factors. <laughs> Whereas like, yeah, if I did a workshop with like maybe like four people and I really respected them and we all respect each other, then maybe that would be different, you know? Yeah. And then like, I've seen, you know, when I was in MFA too, there were like friends, like people in the program, like, let's meet up at a coffee shop. Like let's, uh, and like, exchange work. And it's like, that's cool. But like when you lose that structure of the workshop, particularly with like a mediator, like an instructor in the room, mediating the conversation and like moving things along and shutting people down that are getting too ad hominem and shit, it does tend to fall apart, you know? Well, like to it, be honest, like you saying that really brings up a great point, which is that I struggle with this as well. When my friends send me work, you can't be honest with your friends in that regard. So like you can't really do the workshop with your friends. So it's like, it's really difficult because it's like it needs to be writers that you respect, but it can't be like writers that you're hanging out with all the time. It has to be like it's this really weird fine line. 
Because if it's people that you're like good friends with, then they're going to take that shit personally. And I've seen that. I've witnessed it a ton where it's like, you know, someone gives someone slightly critical feedback instead of wetting their ego. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, this person's a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) I thought this was the point of the workshop. So, yeah. I know that's that's one thing that can happen in MFAs where I think there's a critique that can be made where like the social circle within the MFA, like when you start to know people and I always think one of the things that separated me when I was giving people feedback is one of the things I do and I always tell young writers to do this. There's a second there's an extra step that you can take when you're critiquing something and you ask yourself if I didn't know this person and that means like, you know, when you have a good friend or even a best friend and you know about their relationships, you know about what they're going through, you know about all this stuff. And we tend to put like, see that in the work and then say it's good. And then you have to kind of take that extra step to ask yourself, if I didn't know this person, would it make sense to me? Like, would the poem make sense to me? Right. Or am I using what I know about them as a person to like fill in the gaps that are clearly in the work kind of thing. And that makes it, you know, it's, it's not easy thing to do. I'm not saying that it is, but like if more people made that effort, (laughs) I think like workshops could be more constructive and a lot of it. So it's not just like praising your friends and then, you know, shooting on your enemies and enemies. We haven't even gotten to that, like workshop enemies, the dynamic with that. Oh yes. (laughs) Did you, did you have any workshop enemies or? Uh, mm, kind of not really. I don't know. There was this one who she, I think, like, thought of herself as being a really prolific memoir writer, but we were both poets. And we were both on the poetry track. And then I joined the memoir, like, you know, there was like a class or whatever, and she had published a memoir before. So I think she thought of herself as like, she was different than the other poets. She was a memoirist or whatever. And then I was getting good feedback on the beginning of my memoir piece or whatever. It was like an auto fiction memoir. It's like, whatever. And it was getting good feedback from like the teacher and from the other people in the class. And then all of a sudden she just like trashed me with like the most eviscerating personal (laughs) feedback that like one could ever get. And it was like, it was way too personal for it to just be about the writing. Like it was really intense. And I was like, oh, wow, okay. I guess maybe she sees me as like a threat because I'm also a poet and now I'm dipping my toe into memoir and maybe she <laughs> thought that was lame. I don't know. It's like people get really weird and territorial on MFAs, as I'm sure you know. And so I was kind of like, but whatever. Like I didn't hate her and like I still thought she was talented and like I never had problems with her. But yeah, her thing was so intense. And one of the things that she went after me on, which I've tweeted about before, I think, was um, in my piece, I mentioned going on a cruise to the Bahamas with my family when I was 14. And in real life, this isn't even in the story, it's not relevant, but just contextually, like that was like the first international vacation, international, you can call it that, you know, um, that me and my family had like ever gone on. We'd only ever gone to like Cape Cod before that, like whatever. And, you know, we'd like gone on a couple of road trips, but like, that was like the first time that we'd ever been on a cruise or gone to the Caribbean or whatever. But anyway, it was mentioned in the piece because the piece was like a memoir auto fiction piece that took place when I was in high school. 
And she, I forget exactly why it came up, but her feedback was like that I need to check my privilege <laughs> because, you know, most people can't afford to, you know, go on a Caribbean cruise, da, 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 whatever. Like it was like, it was just so intense. Like I'm sure this cruise was not even expensive. You know what I mean? It was like maybe like $500 a person or something <laughs> like, oh my God. And also, I know for a fact that this woman has lived in multiple countries, like <laughs> globe-trotting lifestyle. And I just felt like that was someone weaponizing like that PC element of the workshop just because I was her workshop enemy in her eyes. I don't know. So like, yeah, things I've experienced things like that for sure. <laughs> yeah. And that, I mean, you know, and the part of that is, you know, what do you do about that? I mean, it is just like part of having this many people in a room trying to do it like the worst I would say I've ever seen was like usually it was two people that if they weren't a couple at one point they were fucking at one point and then they stopped I mean you'd be like MFA shit you're yeah. thrown into this situation and for mine it was like 22 people throughout both you know fiction and poetry sides and it was like well we hung out all the time I mean you know this is who you were drinking with this is who you were partying with so yeah I mean people you know relationships formed here and there a lot of marriages formed out of it too like but then there's like hookups and shit and then when those two people get in the room in the workshop and there's some feelings or resentment whatever it is and then the whole workshop becomes about the, <laughs> like this couple like that <laughs> was like they hate each other and we all have to sit there and like listen to them like dig into each other's shit like horribly and you're like Oh no, I, I was in a relationship on my MFA and we, after the course ended, like had the opportunity to be, and we were still together at the time, had the opportunity to be in a like external workshop together outside of the MFA. And I'm so glad that we didn't like kind of for that reason. I think even when you are still together, it's awkward, let alone like before you, you know, let alone after you break up. I mean, especially if you're um, writing about each I, other. Yeah. Uh, I just, I don't think it's good. Like, and of course these things happen on MFAs. People meet all the time, but yeah, no, I think that it adds, especially because you're all friends. It's so incestuous and everyone's kind of friends with both you and the other person. It's, it's not a great dynamic to be part of if you're both in the same workshop. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. What do we do about that too? It's always kind of like, how do you fix that? I mean, it's just something you have to deal with in terms of like dealing with a workshop and all that kind of shit. But yeah, uh, benefits to MFA, negatives to MFA, your thoughts? In my opinion, the benefit is, the, the very significant primary benefit is that you have at least a year, if not two or three, to just focus on your writing. You know, that's huge. At the end of the day, it doesn't even really matter what you learn. You're going to learn, of course, but it doesn't matter what you learn. As long as you have all of that time where writing is your job, that's literally your job. You're going to have thoughts. You're going to have writing thoughts. You're going to be writing. It's just going to happen inherently. Like I thought that I was like not inspired anymore, but then I did my program and literally like my, even my fucking notes app every day from when I was on that program was like poetic. I had writing thoughts. I was staying up until 3 a.m. writing poetry, you know, that's the best part. I really regret not keeping that momentum after I finished my MFA. I'm now super rusty, but that that's the best part. The downside, I would say, is just like the cost, I guess. Like even if you get funding, like it's still 
you know, you're not making money really during that time, unless you're teaching, but even then it's a small stipend and you know, you're going to have to pay rent somehow and this, that, and the other. So like you do end up going into debt most of the time, regardless of like how much funding you get. So I think that's like the main downside. I don't regret it. Like I am glad that I did it. It, you know, the amount of work that I produced in such a short amount of time, I can now like build off of, I haven't done it, but I will. Um, and so I, I don't regret it. But I wouldn't say that I like recommend it to everyone. I feel like I would recommend it to like specific people and not others. So I wouldn't want to do a blanket thing that's like, you need to do this. Because I think that there's a lot of people who probably could get that inspiration and accumulate that body of work without doing like a full on MFA program. And then there's others that would benefit from it. So it's, it's just kind of hard to say. It's a case by case basis. Yeah. And then there's even like, I, I mean, I agree a hundred percent with what you said. It's like, uh, there's even like the benefits of like networking and shit like that. So if you're like, you know, you go to Columbia, the reason to go to Columbia for an MFA is because if you go to Columbia, well, now you're mingling with everybody on the Pulitzer committee. You're mingling with everybody that's going to be on the NBA committee. Like there's right. just a, like a networking aspect to it. Of course you have to get into Columbia. And of course, Columbia doesn't fund most of their MFA, uh, uh, graduate students, they fund like a tiny little sliver and then you got to take out this huge amount of loans. But yeah, I mean, I totally agree. There's like, it forces you, I always say, and my work, my MFA experience was very isolated because I was in such a small town. I was in Lake Charles, Louisiana, and I grew up, I'm a Baltimore boy, if people couldn't tell from my accent. And it was like, I grew up in a city, Baltimore, it was shrinking. It's still shrinking. But I mean, you know, when I was living there, it's over 500,000 people. And like, I moved to a town that wasn't only in the deep South, but was like 7,500 people like in the deep South. And it was not just culture shock to me, but I always say like, if I didn't do that and I didn't go to this MFA and was forced to live in this town that I didn't really like that much for like three years, you know, I came out a different person. Like it does force you into like the higher ranks of the literary world you know, whether you want it or not, there are plenty of people that drop out of MFAs because that is intimidating. You know, you're having drinks and meeting with literally some fucking Pulitzer Prize winner that came over or whatever, and like the visiting writer and it's fucking nerve wracking and they're just chatting to you or whatever. It's not like, you know, they're always very nice. Usually, usually some of them are not. I have some stories about that, but uh, yeah, I mean, I say like, I did not come, like you will come out a different person. Like you will mature as a writer and a person just because you're put through that. But I do understand why people harp on kind of the negative qualities of it, because it does. I've seen it happen to writers. You get harped on, like you said, in a workshop, especially if they don't like you socially or something like that. Like you will get harped on by certain people and they will attack your shit, attack your shit. And they will kind of get almost scare you out of doing something interesting or like what you were going for, you know, like kind of scare you straight. And I can see why people complain about MFAs in that way because that is a negative thing that happens with it. But there are a lot of positives too. So I'm always just curious, especially given like the online structure, how everything's so fragmented now, you know? I mean, I guarantee that if people like knew about, you know, Cassandra, me, <laughs> it like if I was Cassandra in my workshop, I would have been attacked relentlessly. Oh, yeah. The only reason that I wasn't was because I had plausible deniability because 
you know, I wasn't writing about overtly political shit and I am, you know, like a coastal educated white woman. So therefore I'm perceived to be part of like the in crowd, you know, but if they knew that I was actually like secretly a chud or whatever the fuck that they would call me <laughs> on my Twitter account, like then who knows, I would have been attacked just like they attacked men in the workshop, you know? And you're a Northeastern girl, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm from Boston. Yeah. Oh, you're a mass hole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> there is something about that, too. I was actually talking to my wife about this where we were like, when I was in my MFA, I got along really well. Guess where those people were from? They were from Massachusetts, Connecticut, Jersey, like the people that were from the mid-Atlantic, Northeast area. And like, I don't know if it was mm -hmm. just culturally, like where we were from, you know, you're kind of like a part of that milieu. And I just, there is like an attitude <laughs> that like of people that come from there that are just like, there is a ballsy aspect to it maybe, or just like, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like it, it wasn't that I even like, it, my, the stuff that I wrote wasn't like pretending to be someone that I wasn't. It just wasn't overtly political. So I think that people assign their own projections onto everything. And because I fit this kind of like external narrative of like, oh, this person is like permissible, I was exempt from some of that hate. But if I had been more explicit about things in my writing, then I would not have been exempt from that hate, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's like, and I, this gets to a question I would ask, you know, like, why politics, or at least your theories on it? Like, why, how did politics, particularly kind of DNC politics, as I always like to specify, because this is not, people want to make comparisons to the 90s and early 2000s with like the Christian right trying to ban Harry Potter. Like, it, it is not even close to equivalent to like what's happening now. Like, it, not even close. Like, that was like a few fucking articles and a few school boards, all super religious or whatever. And like what's happening now is a such a larger scale. Like, and I just, I'm always just, how did this happen? Like, why did all of a sudden, you know, politics, particularly DNC politics become the grade marker for everything? Well, it's interesting to me too, because most of the people that I know, especially who are into art, culture and writing, if they are not aligned with the Democrats, they're not leftists or libs or whatever the fuck you want to call it. I'm not even going to say that they're conservatives or right wing, but just anyone who's not on board with all of that stuff, whether they are actually conservative or not. Most of the people that I know in these spheres, whether it's music, arts, writing, whatever, they are perfectly happy to be friends with people who they disagree with. They're perfectly happy to be friends with liberals and leftists and whatever. And in my experience, it's not the same on the other side of the coin. It's if a liberal or a leftist in this sphere finds out that you don't agree with them, that's when you're canceled. But they just assume that you agree with them because that's like, that's what's assumed if you're part of this like class group in this educational group or whatever. And so that's what I struggle with because I have a lot of friends who, I mean, pretty much everyone from MFA who I fundamentally disagree with, but I'm still friends with them and I can still see that they're good people. And I think that they're talented and like whatever, but I know that I won't be afforded the same grace if they ever like heard this podcast, for example. And so it's like, <laughs> You know, um, so it's it's difficult. Um, but I think like what caused all of this? I mean, it's hard to like say it concisely. Yeah, I don't think we're gonna get an answer, but you know, it's this very like downstream like avalanche of things. 
But ultimately, I think what it is, is that like one narrative controls all the media. And by all the media, I don't mean the news. I just mean like all of it. Like, I mean, like music, I mean, Netflix, I mean, like Hollywood, like just kind of everything is like aligned with like one hymn sheet. And if everyone is singing from the same hymn sheet in those fields, then your average person is going to think that that's what the norm is. And then any deviation from the norm is bad. Then when you get on top of that, this weird narrative that any deviation is extremism. I think that all of this has kind of like compounded into this thing where it's like, okay, I don't know. Like basically in the lit world, if you're not, behaving in this like very constrained way, then you're doing something wrong. I don't know. Uh, that That's just kind of what I've experienced. But it is interesting that they do almost want to give you the benefit of the doubt. Like you don't have to actually be saying all of the things. You don't have to be pledging allegiance to all of it. They want to give you the benefit of the doubt. They want to assume that you believe it. But as soon as they find out that maybe you're not on board with all of it, that's when it's like you're done. Yeah, and that's getting to like the DFW thing too, where it's like people are like, well, they talk about stuff other than the what's on the page. So like if they learned like of some like how you voted or something and then you go into a workshop and then they start attacking you for how you voted, not your fucking work. And it's kind of like, but I am fascinated right. by that idea of like, I keep trying to fit. I mean, I, my theory is that it's social media, whereas like all of a sudden in 2015, whether you followed politics or not, it was shoved into your face. It was shoved into oh, yeah. the timeline and you got, you couldn't avoid it. Like it is. And you know, it's always funny where like you people like our circles, we hang out on Twitter. Like if I showed my timeline to like my wife or something that she's like, Oh my God, like, what are you following kind of thing? <laughs> but like, it's it, but like the big stuff it does bump into hers right and she'll be oh that did make it to my feed like she'll be oh yeah i did see that because it made it to my feed most recently i mean this again this is july 6th we're recording this listeners it was like the affirmative action decision was last week like and the people that i know that don't follow anything about politics even on their timelines that was pumped into their timeline so if they get logged on to facebook or instagram or whatever their social media app of choice it was pumped into your feed so I get where the conspiracies come from in terms of like, there seems like there's something sinister going on in terms of like this type of politics being pumped into everybody. And most people are dumb. Like most people just repeat what they see online. So if you're constantly bombarded with this, uh, and it's deeper than politics too, because it's about this morality, like this kind of morality policing uh and I'm just always fascinated. And I like to get writers' perspectives on this too. Is like, how the fuck did this happen? Like, this never used to be. A no, thing. I, I like, definitely I, I agree with you. I think that the watershed moment, in my opinion, happened in 2013, and then by 2016, it was undeniable. And in those three years is when it was like in the process, right? But 2013 is when it like first started coming into the mainstream and 2016 is when it was like, you know, Trump, like you can't deny it anymore. But prior to that, like 2012, when we were in college and stuff, this did not exist. Right. Like being a social justice warrior was a bad thing. Yeah, it was like an eye roll. If you were obsessed with politics, people were annoyed with you. I remember in high school right, like even, yeah. Normal. Yeah. There's yeah. like I had a kid that was like in my high school and he was always like reading the paper and shit. And he like was in the bait club and he wanted to be a lawyer, or lobbyist and shit. And, you know, whatever. I'm sure he's very successful now. We weren't like good friends or anything. But like 
I was the people didn't like him <laughs> because it's like, why the fuck are you reading the newspaper? You're like 17. Right. Like, it's just normal. Can we all just get along? And it's right. like, yeah, somehow between, you know, then and now it's gone the complete other way. And no, we can't just get along. Actually, the whole point is that we're not allowed to get along and we have to like block everyone who disagrees with us. So. Yeah. Yeah. That is. I mean, it's going to be a never-ending question, and it's, I'm always going to be asking it until we find some type of solution to it, but I'm just fascinated. And I, I don't understand how everybody, because even if you're not a political person, I don't understand how everybody's just okay with it. I think that they're not. Like, that's my hunch. That's, like, the reason I started this podcast, because I was looking around going, is anybody going to say how fucking crazy this is? Like, is anybody going to say, like, we're literally erasing the canon. Like, what the fuck are we doing here, dude? And we're doing it to what? Like, save the world? Like, what the fuck are we doing? We're destroying the world. We're destroying literature here. All for, like, a pet, a trendy pet pod, pet project. Sorry, I'm already drunk, listeners, if you couldn't hear. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, like, it, it's, it's incredible to me. Absolutely incredible. But I know that's going to come back up. Uh, I always have to ask this. If you could pinpoint it, or if you feel free to share it, what was your worst workshop experience? You can be as detailed or as vague as you want. Probably the one that I mentioned where that lady like personally attacked me and then said all of that stuff about checking my privilege, but I've had others. There was like another, this, this was not as bad, but I've already mentioned the other one. So I'll mention another one just, you know, to add to the lore. Um, so we were supposed to do um, like trigger warnings and stuff in the workshop. Oh shit! And this was this was on on like Zoom workshop, right? Yeah, and I'm just like I'm sorry, but like this is poetry that we're talking about, and by putting a trigger warning, aren't you giving away like the entire poem? Like, how am I ever going to learn if you even knew what the poem was about if I'm going to put a trigger warning on it? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, say the poem was like sort of tangentially about rape in a metaphorical way if i say it's about rape then like doesn't that destroy the whole point of the workshop like you know what i mean so like i basically was just like i'm not gonna do that right so i instead when i submitted my work to the workshop i said you know general trigger warning for dark themes message me privately if you need anything specific like whatever and no one did and then this other woman followed suit because she agreed with me and privately messaged me saying that she agreed that this was bullshit. And then when she did that, there was like this other person in the workshop who was like very liberal and woke and whatever. And they tweeted, which you're not supposed to do anyway, but I mean, also I'm probably not supposed to talk about this on a podcast, so who cares? But like tweeted on their like Twitter under their name that like anyone can see from the workshop. <laughs> No, like that it's like really fucked up to put a general trigger trigger warning like quote unquote <laughs> um whatever and like that like we should not normalize this and like it, she was obviously subtweeting me and this other woman and i was just like whatever but i i didn't stop doing it but anyway that's like that wasn't my worst workshop moment my worst workshop moment was definitely that first one i've also had um, I've been plagiarized in workshops before, which really fucking sucks. Like, there's this one MFA woman. level. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. Did the did the well, workshop instructor call it out or? The first time, yes. The first time it was in a poetry workshop, and the instructor did call it out. Um, and I think it might have been by mistake the first time. 
like with this person. Like, I think it might've been that she read my thing and liked it. You know, this happens. Like right. I've definitely done that where I've read someone's work and you know, you get the rhythm of it in your head and like whatever. But the second time it was very explicit. And, um, it was, that was for the prose workshop. So the, the memoir class and the person who plagiarized me was like definitely more well-connected than me, like is going to have a much easier job getting her book published than I am. And like plagiarized me basically verbatim. I asked her about it after and she claimed that she loved my work so much that she was like using it as inspiration but like she thought she changed it enough and I'm like girl you can't do that you can't just paste someone's work and change like two words you can't you can't even just do that and change all the words like I'm sorry write your own shit so I feel very uncomfortable with that she claims that she like got rid of that part of her piece but I don't believe her. And if, if I find her novel, like in the wild in like a year, I'm going to be like seething if I see that it's still like that. So, yeah. I, that reminds me of some controversy that was a couple years ago, right? Didn't somebody publish a poem that was like straight plagiarizing and then like the writer saw it and like called it out yeah. on Twitter. Yeah. It was like yeah. a huge blow up and that girl got like all kinds of shit because yes. then if you're it, publishing it, I, it I, yeah. I didn't know about any of this actually until my thing happened and I started Googling what happens if someone plagiarizes you in workshop. And that's why I found out all about that. It's incredible. I had a, we had a, one of my uh, colleagues in the MFA, he did something similar, not quite that egregious, but he took a very famous poem and he put like two verses of it, basically verbatim into his poem and my instructor like saw it right away and was just like, okay, like this is technically you're submitting plagiarized work because you didn't mention it in like an epigraph. You didn't mention anything of how like, oh, this is in conversation with your poem, this poem or whatever, because you can get away with that, you know, but it's fucking, it better be, you know, cited, I guess, at least, especially if you're trying to publish it, like with an epigraph or whatever it is, just be like after so-and-so's poem right, or whatever. Right that's enough and you wouldn't have had an issue. But since you didn't do that, everyone's like, well, <laughs> you're plagiarizing this famous poem. Like, what are you talking about? And it was definitely not a parody, but my worst experiences were, and the thing is it's different dynamic. Like for me, I was basically, this is big headed to say, but this is the truth. I ran the workshop. Like <clears throat> I was the one <laughs> that people were afraid to give me their work, but they also trusted me kind of thing. You know, like I just had that kind of like, and I think I earned that just because of what I did every day in the workshop. But it was like, my worst thing was, yeah, a few people when this was happening and I've started the workshop right in the heart of the kind of Trump getting elected phenomenon where everybody lost their minds and all of a sudden politics became the main focus of every workshop. And I was always just, it was always just like a misogyny accusation or something like that because I wasn't even at that time, I had not even get, taken a red pill, before, you know, like at that time in my life, like, so it was, sorry, listeners, red pill is Twitter speak for like, uh, <laughs> like, uh, seeing a conservative argument and being like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Like, kind of like thing. And like, uh, Twitter speak for those that aren't on it. But, uh, yeah. And, and I just, it's always about, yeah, some type of liberal sexual politics. I always try to specify specifically DNC sexual politics. Cause these aren't rules. These aren't even like, you know, comedy of me like manners or something. These are, policy wish lists, wish lists 
that they're like applying to works of art and saying, well, your work of art doesn't adhere to this policy that I wish existed or something like coming out of this political organization. And I'm like, hold on, you're taking a lot of steps here, like a lot of steps to like accuse somebody of something like this. And it was always just the typical stuff. So nobody hit me too hard, I think, because they did respect me to some extent. But it was always like, yeah, so if you're a man and you write about, if you're a straight man, because you can get away, if you're gay, that matters in terms of the new rules. You can get away with it more if you were gay and writing about something like a psychon. Like, nobody would blink an eye if you were writing these kind of lustful or like even like horny poems for like, if you're gay. Well, you're, violent. Right, yeah, violent and all that. But like, if you're straight and you're a man, it's they're going to come after you with these accusations. And so if you're a man and you're going into a workshop, just be prepared for that and understand that, you know, it's just these people that are too online, like hyper obsessed with politics that they don't even really believe, you know, kind of thing. But yeah, it's, I, I always, I'm going to, I guess, move on to like, is there a solution for any of this? I think that the only solution is for it to run its course by being cringe. Like, yeah. I think ultimately, like, your average person's just going to get sick of it. Like we were talking about earlier, like, people are getting sick of it. We're already seeing the pendulum swing. I don't think that the solution is for the pendulum to swing the opposite way and have, oh, what, like, have the right wing conservatives, like, whatever the fuck you want to call it, like, be in control of everything to the extent that it's like, oh, we're not allowed right. to write about stuff that's quote unquote degenerate. No. Right. But, you know, so, like, I don't think it should be like that. But I do think that, like, we have had these ebbs and flows in terms of free speech and in terms of PC culture over the years. And we've seen it. And, you know, like, I, I'm not super familiar because obviously I'm not of that era. But, like, I'm pretty sure, like, the early 90s, like, there was a bit more of a push to, like, PC culture, Riot Girl, all of that. Then kind of like the late 90s, early 2000s went the other way and they were a bit more just kind of like anything goes. So I don't know. I have the feeling that like there will be some backlash to like the moment that we've experienced right now. I don't know to what extent. I don't think that the solution is to do censorship on the other side. I think that we should just be able to like make the art that we want. Right. I don't think be that hard <laughs> and that's what's clouding it too is like if you're so obsessed with like a political framework in terms to grade art evaluate art then you're you're already in your head that if anything against that is the opposite political thing or whatever and when it when it isn't right like even if you're writing something that isn't political like you said most people's art isn't political and like right. a, even when you're not doing that to assume that if it doesn't adhere to this, what I call the DNC rubric of grading art, it's like to assume that it's the opposite of that or like the other political side right, of the You don't aisle. need an RNC rubric of art either. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's why I always say it's like, it's never really happened before. I guess you could say the fifties where there was the kind of the red scare shit, like, like the kind of Christian right had a lot of power in terms of censorship and stuff. But like, <laughs> that was like a hundred years ago, man. Like, I mean, is that really equivalent to what we're seeing now in terms of i don't think so but yeah i'm just always yeah. curious about how the fuck do we get out of this and i guess it is just like a trend it's a fucking horrible one but like what else can we do but just kind of i mean honestly i think all we can do as individuals on the individual level is keep doing what we're doing like doing podcasts like this making connections however we can whether online or offline 
trying to get through to people as much as we can on like a normal level. I think that that is literally all we can do. Eventually the dam will break, you know? I mean, like I do, I am grateful that like, you know, I don't post my poetry on Twitter because I'm not, you know, I'm anonymous. So like, I don't want to dox myself or whatever, but I'm still like friends with a lot of poets and a lot of artists on there. And, you know, it's, it's reassuring to see how many artists do disagree with that prevailing narrative, you know, like, like we exist. <laughs> yeah. I even think the MFA, like when I talk to people that were, or what I would call on the left and they would uh, talk to them now, like they all feel the same way that everybody feels this, like, this is what's happening. It is oppressive. It is like the most oppressive shit I've ever felt. And I'm not that old, but like. Like in my lifetime, I've never experienced even undergrad workshops were never this censorous. Like they were never censoring yeah, or not. like no. attacking writers for writing about something that they wrote about. Like, you know, you critique it in terms of the craft, but to attack it from a right. political standpoint or a me too standpoint, which is inherently political now, but like, yeah, I hope it's totally. going, I mean, it's happening, right? Like we're seeing it, I think. Yeah, I think that we're like at the forefront of seeing it and like, you know, the mainstream might be a little bit further behind, but I think that there's always an ebb and flow with this stuff. I'm not too blackpilled. I think a lot of people can get way too dark about this kind of stuff and think, oh, this is going to be forever. I don't think that that's the case. And I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, we can build our own spaces and stuff. I mean easier said than done but yeah i don't think that anyone should stop writing about what they want to write about just because of some political movement yeah final thoughts or anything cassandra i know that's everything i had oh i don't know do i have any final thoughts i don't think so um i mean i'm a talker yeah. so talk whatever you want yeah just keep talking <laughs> i just talk all the time my workshops were just like annoying, you know, like people just talked about climate change 24 seven. And <laughs> right, yeah. like, I don't know, there was like this one time that like, someone tried to give like a compliment to some woman and said that her poem was like a diaspora poem. And she said that that was racist. Like, this was just like the day to day thing that we like dealt with in my workshops. And these were all online, like I said, so like there was not even any in-person element. I, I wish that I had had an in-person workshop, but at, at the end of the day, I would have never done an MFA if it weren't for COVID. The only reason I did it was because of COVID, you know, like I would have just kept doing my normal job if not for that. So I, I, I feel like I ultimately can't even complain because like everything happened for a reason and like, this is how it happened. So for me, I benefited. I, spent a lot of time writing. I have like the beginning of a novel and a pretty much done poetry collection out of it. Now I just need to do something because <laughs> I've just been sitting on my ass for like a year. But yeah, that's my rambling little, uh, those are my end thoughts. What about you? <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm in the same boat. Uh, I have a lot of books that are unpublished. They're sitting behind me, most of them. But like, <laughs> Yeah, I just got a fresh rejection from Elixir Press <laughs> for my poetry collection that I've been trying to get published for like the last four years. But uh, I mean, I am doing something weird that not everybody's going to like. So I get that. But it does suck that like the only thing you can do is send a contest and shit. Like I wish I could get because uh, the contests do add another level to it. Like we talked about with Psyken with like 
you go through so many different levels before you get to the judge and stuff. So you have some 20 something, no nothing that's rejecting it. So it's not even getting in the hands of the judge. And then, you know, you're paying the money for all that. And in the state of literary magazines and themselves are just terrible, especially just the way they're run. And I get, they don't have a lot of money and all that. It's mostly volunteer, but they could at least hire somebody with taste. I mean, not to jump in, but do you, are you familiar with Ariana Rhines? No, who's that? She's just like a poet. I don't know if you would actually like her or not. I do like her, but like, I feel like she's kind of divisive in that way. But uh, she's like an Instagram. No, no, she's she's like a legit poet. But like, uh, like years ago, like, like maybe like 15, 20 years ago, she submitted her first collection to Fence Books's uh, poetry collection or uh, contest, sorry. And um, apparently it didn't make it to the judge and it was in the slush pile. And the judge read all of the submissions that were in the non-slush pile, like the final pile, and didn't like any of them. And so she was like, show me the slush pile. I want to see if there's anything in there. And then she found this Ariana Rhines book and loved it. And so I thought that that was so interesting and so indicative of the fact that it's like, you know, these early people who read your thing before the judge reads it can really have like a, a say on the trajectory. And most judges are not going to go say, show me the slush pile. Right, most yeah. judges are going to just pick the best one out of what they've been shown. But like, I don't know, that that was just very eye-opening to me that that happened. Anyway, she is now like an award-winning poet and has published a bunch of stuff. And I really like her, but like she's she's definitely like one of your contemporary, like more colloquial confessional poets. So not everyone loves her stuff. I do though. But like, it was just very interesting to me that that was how she got discovered. And she would never have been like the big name that she is now without that without literally someone having to go into a slush pile to find her. Yeah. And the people so. that I've know that have been readers and stuff, you know, for those types of things, I'm just like, it's a little cringe. I'm like, Oh, I don't trust their opinion. Oh, no. I, like, most people are readers and I'm like, I don't want you reading my thing. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't trust your opinion at all on this. <laughs> like, okay. And I get, it's mostly volunteers. So you're not, you know, these things don't make money. You can't pay people to do it. It's a labor of love, just like a podcast like this, you know, but I mean, yeah, that's all we can do. Right. It's just try to shift the culture away from this bullshit and i guess it is happening slowly but steadily i wish it would happen faster but i guess that's just human we always wish it would happen faster shit would work out a certain way i think we'll get there but yeah it's gonna take some time but the more connections that we can make in these spaces the better so yeah i'm putting together a team <laughs> exactly <laughs> Well, Cassandra, thank you so much for doing this. It's been a blast. Uh, drop your handle here for people. Thank you. Yeah, I know. It's been so great. Um, yeah, you can follow me at truth underscore enjoyer. Apologies in advance if I don't post a lot about poetry. I do from time <laughs> to time, but I also post a lot of other dumb shit that you'll probably hate. But, you know, follow me anyway. <laughs> Absolutely. And listeners, if you have a workshop story to share with us, please send that into heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com. We'll get this. We have more coming up. Hopefully, Cassandra will come back at some point, and we'll be able to do a part two of this eventually. Uh, and we're going to have other guests lined up for this as well. So send those in, heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com. And this has been Heavy
Ward presents Jerk Shop. See ya. Heavy. Board. Heavy. I am heavy, heavy, heavy board. Sweats and the day sweats, pal. Pal, I do.